But if you pull up your left uniform shirt sleeve, you may have something that will confirm to me that you were actually that patient of mine. Pulls a shirt sleeve up and there's the fasciotomy wound. And sure enough, I'm like, man, I know you are. You're my patient. And it was actually really emotional for both him and me. I mean, the, the fact that he was still on active duty, the fact that he'd been looking for me, I'd been looking for him. And after all these years, we find each other in a different country in a war zone. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain, Dr. James Cole to Wardox. Dr. Cole is a board-certified general surgeon with fellowship training in trauma surgery and neurocritical care. He is currently the Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer at University of Wisconsin Health, Northern Illinois Region. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Cole's experiences within the Joint Special Operations Command as a parachutist and dive medical officer while serving his initial military commitment. After 9-11, Dr. Cole returned to the military, this time in the Navy Reserves, and he talks about his assignments with SEAL Team 8 and SEAL Team 6 and his deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. He also provides a behind-the-scenes look into the building, equipping, and training of the first and only trauma center in Southwest Afghanistan in 2014. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain and current trauma and general surgeon, Dr. James Cole to Wardox. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Dr. Cole, you had two time periods of military service, first from 1988 to 2000, and then you came back to service after the 9-11 attacks. What prompted you to join the military in 1988? Pretty much the same reason that most of the other guys say it was a money issue at the time. I mean, I'll be honest, I, w I always had great respect for the military, but I never had a good enough excuse to join. And my dad was a Navy corpsman during the Korean War era. So I was al always interested in joining, but again, I really didn't have a good excuse, except I got married young. I got engaged when I was actually a senior in college. I got married my first year of medical school, and there was really no prospective way of earning a living and to pay for medical school. And so that was my excuse for applying for the Navy HPSP scholarship, which I got. And thankfully, they paid me that $778 per month stipend that allowed me to live. And interestingly, my plan at the time was to stay in for the bare minimum amount, but I actually stayed in for much longer because I really enjoyed it. So you wound up doing your internship at Portsmouth in Virginia at a Navy hospital and then went out as a general medical officer between that internship training and training in residency and surgery. Tell us a little bit about those years between internship and residency. Well, those actually were some of the greatest years of my life. Those are my general medical officer years. And you know, something that I, I wish everybody had the opportunity to experience. I'd finished a really good, what I would consider extremely robust internship year that prepared me really well for being a general practitioner. And I had this amazing opportunity where of the physician for this first surveillance reconnaissance intelligence group at Camp Pendleton. And I served first force reconnaissance company, first air naval gunfire liaison company, a parachute group. 
And it was great. You know, they sent me to parachute infantry training school, dive medical officer school, diver school. And I PT'd with these guys. I swam with these guys. I dove with these guys. Got to know them really well. And I took care of them. And, you know, it was all primary care stuff, but it was just a wonderful experience. I spent some time in Guatemala and Honduras as a general medical officer, but really enjoyed it. And I, I honestly, those two years went by too quickly. And if I could have extended it and it was reasonable, I, I may have done it, but I went on to do my residency instead. Originally, you said that you were planning on getting out as soon as you could. So that would probably would have been three or four years. So you were kind of close to the point where you could have gotten out, but you decided to stay in and do a residency in general surgery. What, what prompted that decision or change in decision? Well, so I actually entered medical school thinking I was going to be a emergency room physician, but like most people, they changed their mind somewhere along the way. And during my third year, I realized the the best emergency room cases were really the ones that the surgeons picked up. And so I knew I knew that I wanted to be a surgeon. When I was at Portsmouth Naval Hospital, I was one of 70 interns. And they were a really elite group of people. We had people from Georgetown and from University of Chicago and Mayo School of Medicine and Duke and so forth. And you know, I was from, we'll just put it less than prestigious, a less than prestigious medical school. But nobody needed to know that because we didn't have our, basically on my name badge, it said Lieutenant James Cole. So I went to a DO school. I was a DO and it was not really common back then for DOs to go into surgery, but nobody really, I guess, knew that I was a DO. So about halfway through my intern year, the residency program director interviewed all of the interns that wanted to become surgeons. And I didn't really expect to get a favorable recommendation letter. But actually, it was great. You know, he was very, very complimentary. And he actually said, listen, after your couple, two, three years as a GMO, I'm going to invite you back and you're going to get a favorable letter. And I was probably overly exuberant about that and, and grateful. And he kind of asked me, well, why the heck am I so happy? And I told him, well, I didn't ever think you'd take a DO. And he looked at me in a really weird way and he said, shut the door and I will deny this if you repeat it. He said, yeah, we're not going to take you. We don't take DOs here. We don't train them. And he said, it's not me. It's the system. It's the Navy and so forth. Of course, I was actually blown away. I went from incredible joy and happiness to I was really just angry. And frankly, at that point, I decided I'm just going to be a, make the best out of my GMO years and, and maybe do three years as a GMO. I, I actually got credit for my intern year and maybe I'll just get out. But, uh, but then after serving those two years with first surveillance recon intelligence group. I really loved the military. I thought those guys were wonderful. I loved the culture. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the fact that I didn't have to think about what I put on clothing-wise to go to work. It was the uniform of the day. And I decided I, I need to figure this out. And I did apply to the Navy for the general surgery residency, but they did not accept me. But I believe by the grace of God, that year, as I understand it, the first year, they had a tri-service surgery, graduate medical education meeting, and Colonel Stephen Hetz at William Beaumont Army Medical Center, who was the GME director for surgery, asked one of the Navy guys, hey, you don't have any other possible candidates, do you? Because I'm still looking for somebody. And uh, the Navy guy tossed Colonel Hetz my file and he looked at it and he took me sight unseen. And, and honestly, he was a, was a great mentor and, I, and I'm grateful for him picking me up and, and training me way back when. So that's interesting that you were a Navy physician, but were able to train at the Army Hospital, William Beaumont Medical Center in El Paso, Texas. 
What was it like being a Navy physician in an Army hospital? Well, of course, they made fun of me in many ways, but of course, I had a good time as well, you know, because my rank was lieutenant and everybody else who was a in my experience, was a captain. So, you know, there's a big difference between a lieutenant in the Navy and a lieutenant in the Army. And people would say, hey, like, why are you a lieutenant? And everybody else is a captain. I'm like, yeah, because I'm just that good. You know, I got in early. So, you know, I was goofing around, jokes like that. But honestly, after a while, they they treated me extremely well. I felt very much a part of them. And I, I really had a great experience working at that Army hospital and, frankly, others. I spent some time at Brook Army Medical Center at Fort Carson, at Fort Lewis. Let's see, where else? Fort Fort Campbell. I mean, I had a really good experience with the Army, and so I have no regrets. They treated me well. So that El Paso program has some legends in Army surgery. You've already mentioned Steve Hatz, but I believe John Holcomb was there at that time, wasn't he? Absolutely. So Colonel Holcomb, or he was Major Holcomb at the time. John Holcomb was sent to us from Fort Bragg. He had, I think, just got back from Somalia, as a matter of fact. And, you know, he was going through some personal things and he was on this mission to essentially come up with some sort of topical hemostatic agent to deal with battlefield hemorrhage. And I became his first research resident and he taught me how to be a researcher. So after your residency, you had a couple of years on active duty as a surgeon. Tell us about those years and why did you then leave in 2000? So those two years as a general surgeon, again, were at an Army hospital, so Navy guy at an Army hospital, because I was also fortunate enough to get picked up by Joint Special Operations Command. And at the time, it was really an Army and Air Force-centric organization with some Navy component to it. But there was a deal that was cut, and I was able to, to go to one of the Army hospitals. But it was a great experience. We got to do a lot of surgery, and I had two really good partners. But in 2000, there was a very different sort of climate, different culture. There were a lot of base realignments and closures. And frankly, I think they were pretty much looking for people to get out. I thought it was a peaceful world. They probably wouldn't need me any longer. And frankly, the Navy, the only thing the Navy could offer me was a, a tour at Guam, Naval Hospital Guam, which meant that I would have to leave Joint Special Operations Command. And I just didn't feel that there was any reason to stay. And I got out on September 30th of 2000, and I didn't think I'd ever be coming back. So you get out September 30th of 2000, and then tell us where you were and what you were doing on 9-11 and how you ended up getting back into the military and your reentry pathway. That was less than a year later after I got out. And I, I worked at two places. I worked at a as a general surgeon at one hospital and as a trauma surgeon at another hospital. And I was at the place where I was doing general surgery. And I I had like four elective cases that day. And I remember coming out of the OR after my first case, it was like a hernia or something like that. And seeing all of these people congregating in the anesthesia lounge area. And to be honest with you, I thought they were watching Jerry Springer. And so I walked in there like, what are you guys doing? And it was crazy. They were all very somber. And they said, a plane just hit one of the twin towers. I'm like, oh my God, that's crazy. That's incredible. I'm like, what are the chances of that? And and so then I went and I did my second case. And when that case was over, I walked back and there were still as many people in that anesthesia lounge and even more. I'm like, what what's going on? And they said, the second Twin Tower was hit. And immediately I'm thinking to myself, that is no coincidence. That is no accident. This was a coordinated terror attack. And I knew that 
something big was going down. And I knew that they were going to need forces. I figured this was uh, basically a, an Osama bin Laden type scenario. And I knew I just had to get back in. And so, you know, I had bought a house. My children were in school and I figured it would be nearly impossible or at least too much of a burden on them to just uproot them again and move. And so I decided I was going to just pursue the Navy Reserve. And actually, it all worked out really well because my previous relationship with Joint Special Operations Command, being a diver and so forth, they just put me right onto Naval Special Warfare SEAL Team 8. And it was actually a great first assignment to get back into the Navy. So what kind of stuff did you get deployed with SEAL Team 8? No. So so SEAL Team 8 is part of Naval Special Warfare Develop, excuse me, Naval Special Warfare Group 2 at Little Creek. And so that was actually my parent group that I supported, but but development group is in the same city. Little Creek is in the northern part of Virginia Beach. Yeah. So so basically I knew the guys at six because I had done some work with them in my previous JSOC days and you know I had them on my cell phone and so I made some phone calls. I'm like, hey, guys, guess who's back in town? And they made some calls to other people to get me permission to get onto the base, onto the unit. And probably about 36 hours later, I was on the unit and I was seeing some old faces. And I'd say by the end of the weekend, and it wasn't the weekend, but a couple of days later, he said, listen, I'm going to call you in a month and we're, we're going to bring you back out here again. And we're going to talk some more about some stuff. And so he did. They brought me back out. And next thing you know, I, I'm getting orders to uh, to deploy. So you deployed to Afghanistan in 2004 with the SEAL Team 6, the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. Tell us about the DevGrew and your memorable experiences from that deployment. Well, the development group, I mean, it's the elite of the elite. I mean, these are special operations commandos. Frankly, the experience was surreal, amazing, humbling. I loved every bit of it. I was privileged to be with these guys because... I mean, they were really the best of the best that I'd ever worked with. They're highly professional. They're also crazy. I got to I got to admit, they're they have this infectious energy, emotional energy, intellectual energy, physical energy. It's it's almost impossible to keep up with sometimes. But it was just wonderful. I mean, it had anything they wanted, any kind of equipment, any kind of weapons. I mean, I could have anything I wanted. And I'm just the doctor in the group. They they assume that. You don't need much training in anything. And fortunately, I had had some training in things like, you know, parachuting and fast roping and stuff like that because they're kind of like, hey, doc, you fast roped, right? It's been a while. Well, guess what? We're going to do it on this next mission. So that's just the, that's just how they are. And they were really great. And I really loved that experience in Afghanistan with them. Tell us about any memorable clinical cases you had on that deployment. Well, I'll tell you about one. So we were supporting an operation and it was down on the the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And somebody was hit with a fragment in the belly, hypotensive, and I did an X-lap. And it was a huge retroperitoneal hematoma, did a Cattell maneuver, rotated the right colon over, exposed the, the cava, got, got control. There was a hole... <laughs> In the cava, which I was, so I evacuated the hematoma, sewed it up, you know, gave the guy some blood, and that guy did great. And that was combat surgery in a tent. That's that's what we did. How long did you have to hold on to him before you could get him out of there? So at that particular place, that was like three days, I think. That was at Salerno, and that was an army facility. And you know, that's what we did. You know, we we basically ended up going to 
places of opportunity to, to do our work with that particular unit. So when you were with the SEAL team, did you carry your own surgical sets and equipment and then set up at a tent and at these different forward operating bases? How did that work? Let's put it this way. We had a surgical kit that was, it's not organic to that particular team. Frankly, it's not organic to any SEAL team, but it's organic to the Joint Special Operations Command medical organization that supports them and other people like them. And we would go out, accompany them and fall onto either places of opportunity or set up our own stuff, our kit, wherever we wanted to, to render medical and surgical support, frankly, trauma support, let's put it that way, as needed. My special purpose on that organization was to be the joint task force surgeon for that particular team and an augmentee to the medical surgical team that in general supports six and other organizations like them. So you would try and get the patient, if you could, to a role two that was just of opportunity that may not be organic to you know your unit, but it was just Correct. there. Okay. And would you, would you work alongside the surgeons that were at the role two? Yes. Yep. We, yep. We'd work with them. And sometimes we only work with ourselves, you know, our own people in the unit, but yeah, we work with whoever we could get. So you then served as a dive medical officer for two years. Tell us about doing that job while being trained as a surgeon. That was my reserve job, being a DMO with Specware 2 in Little Creek and then eventually Specware Group 1. And, you know, you're basically a general practitioner for people who dive and you're responsible for certifying them, doing their dive physicals, making sure that they're healthy enough to dive on that particular day. But the cool thing about it is you get to dive with them and you get to PT with them and you get to socialize with them and you get to do all those other things. So honestly, it was more of a an enjoyable social general medical officer type practice. I mean, it's not a big deal that I was a surgeon because I would only do it for short periods of time and then go back to doing my surgical job in the Chicago area. And these were all physically fit individuals that were young and healthy as well? Yeah, these were SEALs. Yeah, yeah they're very fit. So you got a chance to be deployed again, this time to Iraq, supporting the Marines, the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force. How is it different supporting the Marines as a Navy surgeon versus working on a ship and being expected to operate in that environment versus going far forward and operating at forward bases in Iraq. So, so the weird thing is that I had the weirdest Navy career in that I've never even spent a day on a ship. Okay. So I can't even really comment on what it's like doing surgery on a ship or even being part of ship's company. But all of my expeditionary time has always been in tents or Quonset huts or buildings of opportunity with mobile equipment and, and expeditionary austere type equipment. And I had experience with that back in my JSOC days in the 90s using all the, the hang, hanging bags and the portable equipment, the generators, the tents and all that stuff. So when I received orders to leave the, the SEAL teams and to get on into the Marine Corps unit, I was very comfortable with that because their modular equipment and their, their kit, their, their forward resuscitative surgical system, if you will, was exactly what I'd used in, in times past. I knew all their equipment. I knew everything that they used and I was very comfortable with it. And of course, the Marines themselves have corpsmen or physicians. They use Navy corpsmen and Navy physicians and Navy nurses and so forth that they integrate into their unit 
and you know you become a part of that Marine Corps organization, but you're still Navy. So honestly, it was it was good getting back to the Marines. I, that's where I kind of started my operational time as a general medical officer, and it was it was nice getting back with them and serving in in Iraq. So this period of time that you were with the Marines was between 2007 and 2008. What clinical cases did you experience during this, and how did that contrast with the ones you saw in Afghanistan three years prior? I mean, they're very similar. I mean, they're it's war, right? So you know, you have blast injuries. A lot of people getting their legs blown off, arms blown off, IED blasts, so multiple holes in different body parts, fragmentation injuries, some gunshot wounds, some blunt trauma. Not not that much, frankly. So it was it was actually very similar. When I was in Iraq, I mean, I was actually with a large group of people, probably 100, maybe 115 people that had some surgeons, be it orthopedic surgery, general surgery, some anesthesiologists, CRNAs, corpsmen, nurses, and so forth. And we were positioned in this large Quonset hut at Takata, right, TQ. But I was split off from that team on many occasions as the OIC of a forward mobile team that would, you know, I got to handpick everybody that I want that would go off and do this sort of expeditionary medical surgical stuff. A lot of it was just medical support because people get dehydrated, they get, they get ankle sprains, they get gastroenteritis, they get appendicitis, and sometimes they get traumatic injuries. And so, I mean, I saw the whole spectrum, every, everything from, from the most minimal type of medical problem to, to literally mortal grave severe traumatic injuries. Was there any specific case you remember from that Iraq deployment? Well, I mean, one thing I'm going to tell you is, so I had just gotten back from outside of the wire. I was outside the wire like three months living in a seven by three foot tent, setting up, taking down these 15 by 18 foot base X modular tents, moving equipment, living in the field, sometimes eating T-Rats, MREs, whatever, showering once a week whether or not we needed to. And so I'd been gone living like an animal kind of in the field for these three months. And we got back inside the wire at TQ and my hair was long. So I got a haircut, took a shower, changed my uniform and rested. And I really don't remember for how long. And next thing you know, there's a, a warning of incoming from Ramadi, which is about 25 kilometers to our west or so, as I recall it. And all these Blackhawks started coming in. And so casualties started rolling in. And so I go to the surgical shock trauma platoon at Big Quonset Hut and the ED physicians and the primary care doctors, they, they ran the codes and there were nurses and, and corpsmen that, that helped them. And the surgeon stood behind this big line, this yellow line, if I recall, and we would only go if called. But so Marines being Marines, you know, they, a lot of, lot of F-bombs, a lot of swearing, you know, a lot of swearing, a lot of yelling. But there was this one Marine that was not swearing, was not yelling. And he caught my attention. He was in the far right of the, of the big array of trauma casualties. And I wasn't called, but I just walked over there. And he was this really polite Marine. He said, sir, sir, I'm in so much pain, sir. I'm in so much pain. And I'm like, Marine, what's your name? And I told him who I was. And I kind of just looked and he had all these wounds. He had multiple sub-centimeter ball bearing type wounds in his, his legs, his groin, just under his, his abdominal body armor. And his one of his legs, the foot ankle area was partially blown off and had a hole in his arm. And and I, I said, yeah, I'm Marine. I'll take care of you. I will take care of you. And a CRNA, I believe, intubated the patient. I took the patient to the OR. And so me and this other surgeon worked on his belly and this orthopedic surgeon worked on his leg and his arm. <clears throat> and he had a lot of injuries. I mean, he had, I, I remember 
as clear as it was yesterday. He had a hole in his rectum, sigmoid colon, multiple holes in his small bowel hole in his stomach, left hemidiaphragm. And, um, and, you know, I did damage control surgery and I, I resected what I needed to resect. I, I sewed up what I needed to sew up, put a chest tube in the guy and ortho debrided the, the leg and, and explored the left arm. And I put a sort of a field expedient wound vac, if you will, a temporary abdominal closure device onto him, left him intubated. And, you know, we really had no holding capability, certainly no ICU. We had no, we had a very limited blood bank. It pretty much only had a little bit of pack cells and some FFP. And so we just sent him to a roll three because we were a roll two and we sent him forward and dealt with other casualties. And you know, it was about three o'clock in the morning when it was kind of all said and done. And I was saying to myself, what the heck? I didn't even get that guy's name. And, and I couldn't remember and I couldn't check up on the guy. And for whatever reason, I just couldn't. We didn't have EMR back then at TQ. And so this particular guy haunted me. And I'm not kidding you, almost every night, for years, for years, I would, I would go to bed and he was just one of other people, many other, frankly, that I felt like I had this weird, like sense of moral obligation to remember everything about his injuries and his, his surgery, but I couldn't find his face in my memories and I couldn't remember his name. And it was really hard. It was one of these things where I just couldn't sleep. And I'm like, I'm never going to get over this. And I started journaling, writing things down to help me and so forth. But Anyway, flash forward, it's January of 2014, and I, I'm, I'm now assigned as a different job, force surgeon to RC Southwest in Afghanistan. I was at Camp Leatherneck, and I, I get there, I'm jet lagged, and this, this aide de camp walks up to me, this big tall guy, this captain, Marine, he says, sir, hey, you got to meet the commanding general because you're the force surgeon, he wants to meet you. I'm like, yep, roger that. I'll, I'll go and see him in a little bit. And he says to me, so where have you been, sir? What have you done? You know, the typical. And I'm like, yeah, well, I've been here and there. And, oh, you were in Iraq? Where were you? I was at TQ. When were you there? I told him when I was there. And he goes, yeah, I, you know, I was I was at TQ. I was a casualty. I was from Ramadi. But, yeah, I, 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 I never did find out who took care of me. I'm like, well, what happened to you? And he pulls up his, his uniform pant leg and he shows me as a prosthetic leg. I'm like, well, when was it again? It was January 2008. I'm like, I'm pretty positive. I did not cut off any legs in January of 2008. And, and, and the conversation kind of ended. And then, and then the next day, he was asking me some more questions. He said, sir, I've been really, really trying to find the surgeon that took care of me. And I couldn't find any records. And I spent all this time at, at Roll 3. And then I was at, I was at the launch tool. I barely remember any of that. Then I was back in the States. I said, I, I promise you it wasn't me. I didn't cut your leg off. And he goes, no, no, no. That happened a year later. Like, oh, what else happened to you? And he said, and he lifts his shirt up and he shows me this big midline laparotomy wound and what looks like a colostomy scar. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. January, 2008. Like, well, I'm telling you, there's this guy. And I told him the story. I did all these bladder, rectum, all this stuff. And he said, that's what happened to me. I'm like, oh, this is getting eerily odd. Okay. You've not told me everything, I'm pretty sure. And I have not told you everything. But if you pull up your left uniform shirt sleeve, you may have something that will confirm to me that you were actually that patient of mine. Pulls a shirt sleeve up and there's the fasciotomy wound. And sure enough, I'm like, man, I know you are. You're my patient. And, and it was actually really emotional for both him and me. I mean, the, the fact that he was still on active duty, the fact that he'd been looking for me, I'd been looking for him. And after all these years, we find each other in a different country in a war zone. 
And he writes his family or communicates with them via email or something like that. Very emotional with them. And anyway, when we got back in the States almost a year later, it was was a year later, I got to meet his family. I got to meet his fiance. Uh, About a year and a half later, I went to his wedding. And a couple of years later, I, I know he had a baby. And he actually sends me a text message every year on the anniversary of his getting hit with that IED or actually was a suicide vest. You know, hey, sir, just want to say hi. Thanks for another great year of life. And we became very close after that. And that was probably my most memorable war experience. Wow, that's amazing. So then in the spring of 2012, there was a live fire exercise with NATO allies in Morocco. You were part of a Navy Reserve Forward Resuscitative Surgical System sent to support that mission. Unfortunately, during that exercise, an Osprey crashed, causing four critically ill casualties. Tell us about that event. So I was part of a, of a team of really a piecemeal ad hoc reservists that were sent to the Moroccan desert. African Lion was the, was the operation to support this live fire exercise between the U.S. Marines and the Royal Moroccan Army. And when I got there, I realized almost nobody had been to the combat zone. And very few people were, were familiar with expeditionary equipment, the stuff we use in a frisk, the hanging bags, the pro-pack monitor, the Eagle Impact ventilator, the POGS, portable oxygen generator system. And frankly, a lot of them didn't have anything to do with trauma. Some of these corpsmen worked at a nursing home or they're frankly students or they had nothing to, they went to core school and they did spend some time in the Navy active duty and then reserves, but they really were not field ready. And same with a lot of the officers. So I talked to the CO of this exercise and go, hey, sir, you, you know, you put me in charge of this surgical team, but it's a piecemeal assembly of people that frankly are not ready. And I'm really concerned. And he says, doc, do not worry. They will never need you. You are merely an insurance policy. Just forget about it. Enjoy your time. Read a lot of books. I don't care what you do. Don't worry about it. Well, I was not very comfortable with that. As a matter of fact, really super uncomfortable with that. And I got together a couple of the officers, the medical guys, and I'm like, listen, man, we had two options. We could do nothing, like the colonel said, or we could actually train these people up, down, and all around and get them prepared for what may happen. I don't know. A mortar could go off in a tube. Uh, an AK round could get errantly fired. I, I don't know. A grenade frag could hit somebody. I need to be ready. And they agreed that that was the right thing to do. So for eight, nine hours a day, for the next many weeks, we trained these corpsmen and these nurses and these doctors, frankly, they had no experience in doing this kind of thing in the field in everything from soup to nuts on field expeditionary trauma management. You know, I started with ATLS classes and then we went through all the hanging bags. We, we, I showed them how to use every piece of equipment. We did mock casualty drills, litter carries. We did nine line radio casualty evacuation call outs and all this stuff. And we loaded ambulances, unloaded ambulances. We, we did all this stuff. And, and honestly, I felt really good about it after about three weeks and the team was feeling good. And so I told them to take a stand down we're going to take a day and we're just going to relax. And I remember it being an extremely windy day and the tents were blowing like crazy. And, uh, you know, it was, it was too noisy anyway to do training because the, the walls of the tents were making so much noise from the wind. And uh, we were about like two kilometers from the Northwest African coastline. So some people went out to just, just look at the ocean. And, and I went to the Moroccan camp. I was just doing some liaison work with some of the Moroccan medical team. And when I'm there, I get this notification. We think 
an American helicopter went down. I'm thinking, an American helicopter? We have no helicopters here. And so I, I told the colonel, I, I, I got to get back. And he goes, take my vehicle. I drove back immediately to the base. And, and my whole team was already ready in the, the frisk tents, ready to go, ready to receive. And people, the Marines and corpsmen had drove out to pick up these casualties. Sure enough, a, an Osprey was, had flown in, a couple of Ospreys had flown in off the coast on a Marine expeditionary unit, one of the Mews. And we're just kind of doing a look and see what we were doing. And one of the Ospreys just got a big tailwind and lifted it straight up and it did a nosedive right into the desert about one kilometer from our tents. And yeah, there were four casualties. Thank God only four were, were in the bird at that time. But anyway, we got four. Frankly, one was, was, was dead on arrival, sadly. The other one was, was, was gravely injured and we took him through everything we possibly could to save his life, but he was unsalvageable, unfortunately. And then we had two others that had class four shocks, severe open fractures, bad wounds. And, you know, we took care of them and we did some surgery and we got them resuscitated and we transfused blood. And, but then there was even more because, because the plan, the casualty evacuation plan for a real world casualty was to have the Moroccan helicopters take them to this place called Tantan, which is a, a Moroccan airstrip where a C-130 from the Air Force was going to be waiting and they were going to be ready to take them to launch till. Well, guess what? Rocket helicopters don't fly once the sun sets. Nobody knew that. And the sun had set. And so, you know, I had to get in contact with the ships out at sea to send me some other helos. And then, so they did, but unfortunately they weren't medically configured. They had no staff. So now we had to basically take my team and turn them into a, a mobile medical transport team, but they had no liquid oxygen on board. And we only had like six cylinders of O2 left. And somehow we had to keep people intubated for a very long period of travel to launch to Germany. So ultimately, it was like, okay, we got to make this happen. We're going to have Corman bag. We're going to monitor entitled CO2. We're going to mon monitor SPO2. We're going to bleed O2 cylinders into these AMBU bags. And you're going to be bagging for hours and hours. We're going to have critical care nurse on board give all the medications necessary and fluids to keep these casualties alive and route. And that's what we did. And honestly, they, they were alive and doing well. By the time they ultimately got to Langstuhl, Germany, they obviously did more surgery on them. And we ended up getting word back that they were long-term survivors. And, and it was really an amazing success and transformative, to be honest with you, with many of these corpsmen and some doctors that were in those tents with us on that day, because that's the biggest thing they'd ever done in their entire Navy career. But some of these guys had in, intended on just leaving the Navy altogether and going into business school or something like that. And I actually had this one guy who was a, a senior in college who had been accepted to medical school, but he had already told me, he goes, I'm not going to medical school. I'm just, you know, I'm going to get married. I'm going to be done. I'm going to be a biologist or something. But that changed him. He became a, a physician. Ultimately, I know he's now an ER doctor. There were actually two Marines that decided they were going to finish their term of enlistment and go into some sort of medical type school or nursing school as well. So that was really a, a, a crazy experience that unfortunately turned out tragically for two Marines, but turned out really well for two other Marines. So all that training paid off as you basically had to be a makeshift CCAT team to get the, those patients out of your area of responsibility and out to lunch tool. You got it. I mean, it was, yeah, we did not expect any of that. And it was all just improvise and adapt, overcome, you know, on the fly type stuff. But thank God for the training because everybody stepped up. They were calm, cool, professional, and they did exactly what they needed to do. So you got a chance to go back to Afghanistan prior to your, re your retirement in 2014. And at that point, 
there was talk about obviously the coalition team was going to be leaving Afghanistan at some point and the Afghans were going to have to figure out how to take care of this on their own. So what kind of stuff were you doing to train the locals to do what you guys had been doing for so long? Yeah, so that was 2014, and, and they said the president and then the commanding general of Afghanistan, of, the, of our theater, you know, said, okay, all combat troops out Afghanistan by the end of the year, and anything that you provide, any real support that you provide to the to the Afghan National Army, the counterinsurgency team, you are going to have to ensure that they can provide it for themselves and it's self-sustaining. Well, the thing about Camp Leatherneck, Helmand Province, which is the southwest, is they had no hospitals at all. They had no health system. They had a troop medical clinic that was fairly worthless. And so we had to build a trauma center. I call this Schroederbach Trauma Center, but you know, it was, it was, it was perfectly adequate by Afghan standards, but we had to build it, we had to equip it, and we had to equip it with stuff that we could get from the region at least, be it Pakistan or 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 Kabul, Afghanistan, or Uzbekistan, or something like that, because we also needed it to be local enough that it could be serviced if necessary. So we had to we had to build it, we had to equip it, and we had to train these people. And I largely re- relied on the Brits that worked for us to train them on how to be surgeons, because they their physicians and nurses aren't like our physicians and nurses. They have a, a, a different level of training, which I would say is not even close to our level of training. But we had to train them to be up to that standard, to be tra- a trauma team, a real trauma team that handled real combat casualties. And we had to train them how to do anesthesia and damage control laparotomies and how to put chest tubes in, how to deal with burns and how to debris wounds and stuff like that. Well, you know, at first I thought this was like an impossible, insurmountable task. But you know, I spent literally every day or parts of every day on that Afghan compound with hundreds of Afghans, advising them and helping them build this this robust Afghan National Army trauma team. At first, I didn't think it was going to really happen, but honestly, it, it all came together. And next thing you know, they're doing surgery. At first, it's assisted surgery with us, then it's surgery on their own. And next thing you know, they're doing, they're kind of pushing the envelope. They're opening the chest. And in one case, they actually did a craniotomy, which obviously the, guy, the patient didn't survive, but actually I give them credit for trying. But, you know, we had to train them how to be a walking blood bank. We had to train them how to to evacuate their casualties out with the MI helicopters that, that we had provided them and when to transfer them out and how to transfer them out safely and so forth. And by the 500th trauma casualty that actually went to the OR under general anesthesia, I was very confident that this thing was going to work, that they were actually going to be able to be self-sustaining. And we actually did leave. And I did stay in touch with some people that were able to have periodic eyes on that trauma center, Camp Schorbach. And they were up and running for a very long time after we left. So one of the things that I find interesting on your CV is that you are board certified in neurocritical care. And you obtained that certification in 2011, which was prior to the event we discussed involving the Osprey and this most recent deployment you had in 2014 to Afghanistan. Tell us exactly what that certification does for you. And did you ever end up using it during any of your military career? So here's the thing. Neurocritical care at the time was you could be grandfathered in if you met all the criteria. And being a trauma surgeon, about 20 20 to 25% of the patients I treated or that were continuously on our service 
were brain trauma casualties, be it subarachnoid hemorrhage, subdural, whatever, penetrating trauma. But we also had this deal with the neurosurgeons that my trauma group also took care of all the medical cerebral neurosurgical things, be it brain tumor, be it hemorrhagic strokes, whatever needed care for, we provided the critical care for them. So I'd been doing this for years. And, and honestly, part of my training at William Beaumont as a resident afforded me the skills and the comfort to be able to do that because we had no certain neurosurgical residents. We were the residents to the neurosurgeon. So I did actually more craniotomies than I did hysterectomies as a resident. And we had really good critical care training. I mean, it was like five years of continuous training. So so when I got out and I was doing trauma critical care at that civilian trauma center, it was just part of what I did for all those years. And when this opportunity was made possible for me to just sit in and be grandfathered in, I took a lot of CME courses and I attended conferences, but I sat for the exam and I, I, I passed. So now I, you know, at that time I became board certified in neurocritical care. I continued to use it just like I used it previously. Did I use those skills when deployed? I mean, sort of, but not really, not any more than anybody else at any role two uses them because it's a role two. We don't do neurosurgery. We don't even have CT scanners out there. But I mean, it just afforded me more greater comfort in managing traumatic brain injury, but then of course, sending them forward to a role three. You spent time as a trauma medical director at UW Health Swedish American Hospital, and now as the vice president of medical affairs and CMO of the University of Wisconsin Health, Northern Illinois. You also have a significant amount of time in both the civilian world, working since you were reservist, but, but also in your military role as a military trauma surgeon. What advice would you give from a leadership standpoint to military physicians who are practicing medicine in the military system now? So first of all, uh, anybody that enters the, the military health as a, as a young physician or a young nurse or, or therapist or whatever it is you get in as PA, you will basically be somebody who provides the skill that you're trained in doing, but stick around a year or two and they're going to ask you to have some, some sort of leadership role and whatever that may be. And some people they stomp their feet and they say, I absolutely positively won't do that. Well, that's not good for your career progression. I, I promise you that. And so I promise you, you should do it. You should do it. But, but my advice is do it bit by bit. Start slow. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't accept something that's truly out of your league. But, but don't turn it down. When they, they give you an opportunity, just take advantage of it. I was the chief of general surgery in 1998, didn't really want it, but I took it. And then became chairman department of surgery in 1999, didn't really want it, but I took it. And then similar things like that just sort of presented themselves to me over the years. And, you know, at first I didn't really want it, but I took it, you end up getting good at it. And it gives you a different perspective on, on what it takes to run a healthcare organization, be it really small or be it really large, depending on your level of involvement. It's also just really good for career progression because you know, you're more likely in the military to be promoted if you've had these leadership experiences and, and been successful at them. And, and frankly, in the civilian world, same thing. You're, you're more marketable if you're a good clinician and you're also a good leader and you've had leadership experience. So, so don't shy away from leadership opportunities embrace them and just get good at it and do it bit by bit as you progress. In 2012, you published a book entitled Trauma, My Life as an Emergency Surgeon. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Mentioned earlier in this discussion we're having that I had these sort of haunting 
memories, experiences that, you know, I couldn't let go of. And it wasn't just that particular casualty that I described. I mean, there were other things that um, really haunted me, gave me great trouble. And they all had to do with my life as an emergency surgeon, be it some of it was as a resident, some of it was as an attending, some of it was during war. And and I, as I tell some of my patients who have these sort of post-traumatic situations, I experiences, I say, journal, journal it, journal it, it's going to help you. Of course, I didn't really know that because I'd never done it myself. But I, I kind of said to myself, man, you're having the same problems they are. You should start journaling. So I started doing it myself and I, I realized it was very therapeutic and it really did allow me to sort of release the stuff that I felt strangely obligated to retain in my brain with immense detail. So after I'd written down 150 or so pages, I realized that if I could assemble all this chronologically, I could really have some sort of a pseudo book that I could like show my family so they kind of understand a little bit more of who I am and how I'm hardwired. And so that's what I did. I, I put it together and I realized that there were some gaps in time and there were other experiences that may not have been as traumatic or memorable to me personally, but I remembered them well enough. And so I would write about that and I'd fill the holes. And ultimately the thing became a book. And, uh, you know, I reached out to a number of different publishing companies, most of, most of whom said no, not interested, but one who did find some interest. And after I made some, some changes in the edits, they, they, they published the book and it was a while ago, but it's still out there. And, and I'm glad I did it because it, it kind of helps tell the story of who I am. So kind of continuing that theme of what you want to be remembered as, or what you want your family to understand about your career, both in the civilian world as a trauma surgeon and also going to war and being in the Navy. If your future family would somehow find this podcast a hundred years from now, what would you want them to hear? You know, I'd want them to hear that I was literally grateful for every experience that I had. You know, I've had so many unique and grateful experiences. I love serving in the military. I loved the fact that I worked with the Navy, worked with the Army, I worked with the Marine Corps, I worked with special operations teams. And even though I had to deploy a number of times, that was a privilege to be able to do that, to take care of those service members, local nationals, whatever, even enemy combatants. It was a privilege to work as a trauma surgeon and as a physician. And my life, in my opinion, was extremely fulfilled. And if somebody is interested in pursuing that pathway. It's a lot of work, a lot of craziness, a lot of hardship for the people you leave behind when you go away. But at the end of the day, taking care of people and, and, and serving your country, highly recommended. It was good for me, and I'm grateful for all that I was blessed with. We've been speaking with Dr. Jim Cole on Wardock's podcast. Jim, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. Hey, thank you guys so much for inviting me here. I mean, this has been just a great opportunity. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.